At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 8 this morning. And excuse me while I set up a little bit. Many of you might notice I'm not wearing the boot this morning. Praise God for that. (laughs) Definitely on the road to recovery. I think I've got two more weeks until I can do more physical activity. So thank you for your prayers and and all of that. And uh, it's good to like wear two shoes again. I have to go buy some new shoes. Anyways, this morning, if you have a Bible or trunk device, I encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse uh, 4 this morning. As we turn there. You know, as you're turning to Acts chapter 8, you know, this week I was doing some study and, and I was just trying to, trying to put my finger on the pulse of like, what is happening in the way in which America or Americans relate to basic biblical doctrines? Like, what, what is the, the common consensus of what, what is it that people are believing about basic biblical doctrines? And I came across this interesting study from Arizona Christian University. And that's what they really were trying to do. They were trying to look at the current ways that Americans view basic biblical doctrines. And one of the things that they found as a whole is that basic biblical beliefs in basic biblical doctrines in America is on a decline. Which shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we see it everywhere we go. The the, the Bible is being removed from every part of our world and and people are moving away from from truth into um, no truth existing at all. And so we live in an interesting time. But in this study, it found a couple of things. This may shock you. That, it, that it, Americans on a whole are more confident about the existence of Satan than they are of God. 56% of Americans believe that Satan is an influential being, while only 49% of Americans are confident, are not confident that God truly exists. We also see that Americans on a whole are losing faith. In the person of Jesus Christ, 44% of Americans believe that Jesus sinned while he was on earth. And by the time we get to the Holy Spirit, there's even more confusion. 52% contend that the Holy Spirit is not a living entity, but a symbol of God's power, presence, and purity. In addition, one-third, 32%, believe that the Holy Spirit is real, and only one-sixth of adults do not have an opinion at all about the Holy Spirit. Much confusion, right? Basic biblical doctrines, right? We, get, we come down to, and the Bible basically teaches that there is God. And there is a God that exists in three persons. That there's one God, that he exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These are foundational truths that to be a, a believer at the basics, you've got to have an understanding of that. 
But, you know, if we look across the church, those that would call themselves Christians, would, would identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ, we would see there is a, a basic consensus, right? There is this kind of general understanding that there is a God and there's God the Father and God the Son. But when we get inside the church, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, many believe in the Holy Spirit, but there's so much confusion even inside the church that there are some that no longer hold to orthodox views of the Holy Spirit, especially as we look into like the Pentecostal movement where there's this the second blessing or there's this the second baptism of the Holy Spirit or we move towards the charismatic movements where we believe in faith healing and speaking in tongues and all this. there's so much confusion even inside the church about the role and the person of the Holy Spirit. Well today we're continuing our series the essentials, why truth matters. We've been trying to to establish the basic foundational um, doctrines of the Christian faith. We've been using the Apostles' Creed as our uh, statement that we've been walking through to look at what are the core foundational beliefs. Now remember, the Apostles' Creed was used by the early church as a discipleship mechanism, as uh, those that didn't have access to Scripture or those that could not read The Apostles' Creed was a statement of basic foundational principles. And so far, we've looked at God the Father, we've looked at Christ, and today we come to the statement in the Apostles' Creed that states, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so today we want to look at this statement and we want to see specifically what what does the statement say and what does it mean and what do we believe But the problem is, is that we can't just come to this statement and simply just say, hey, I believe in the Holy Spirit and move on. Because what you understand and what I understand and what the Bible understands may be completely different. Right? We may may have mixed conceptions about what do we what do we mean when we say the Holy Spirit? And today I I want us to understand, and as we come to this, this text, I want us to understand at our core is what we want to really know is do we truly possess the Spirit in our lives? That's, that's really the question that's at our hearts. Because if we truly know how the Spirit moves into our lives, then we can know who He is and what He's doing in us and through us. So we're going to come from this text a little bit different. I'm not going to give you 12 proofs for the existence of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to come and, and um, give you uh, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the sense of the Spirit is this, the Spirit is not this. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to come to a biblical text and we're going to see how the Holy Spirit comes and indwells our lives. Because when the Holy Spirit then indwells our lives, then we can understand the Holy Spirit. It's not until the Spirit indwells us that we can really understand him. He becomes this mythical thing that's out there. But when we believe and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, then we have the ability to know him. So we're going to do this as we jump into our text this morning. We're going to look at Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. And we're going to see, we're going to look at three scenes today. As we walk through this biblical account that Luke gives us in the book of Acts, we're going to see the opposing views or opposing understanding of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit interacts and how the world um, understands and pushes back against the work of the Spirit. So we're going to look at three scenes today. The first, we're going to see a scene of confrontation where we're going to look at the spectacle versus the Spirit. Look with me in verse 4. 
It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now we're jumping into the middle of a text that I want to give it to us in its context of, of where it comes in Scripture. Remember at the beginning of the book of Acts as Jesus has has uh, resurrected from the dead and spends 40 days with his disciples before he ascends into heaven, he gives them this command. He says, but wait here, for you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, the Holy Spirit was given the apostles and the followers of Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes into them and dwells them so that they can carry out the mission of God, which is proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now, what's amazing here is that the gospel begins in Jerusalem. At the moment of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down, we see that many, many people place their faith in Jesus Christ and immediately receive the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit and the, the, mes- the mission of God begins in Jerusalem and then it moves to, Ju- Samar- or to, to Judea and now in Acts chapter 8, it's moving into Samaria. So we see the movement of God, the promise that he gives is this mission of God is being carried out. And it's interesting also that the reason that the, the mission of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is moving outside of Judea into Samaria is because of persecution. Like look at the beginning of chapter 8. What's going on? Saul, who will later become Paul, is persecuting the church. And so he's trying to silence believers and he's trying to do something bad which God uses for good. And so now the gospel message is going out. Believers are moving out beyond their comfort zone. They're moving to Gentile lands. They're moving into enemy territory. And they're bringing the gospel with them. And the gospel's coming with power. And that's what we see in this place. Philip, who is a follower of Christ, is a believer who comes to Samaria in the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching Christ. And the power of Christ comes with many, many miracles and and wonders. And the people are in awe. And now we see the confrontation being set up between the Holy Spirit and a man named Simon. As we look at verse 9, we see that that Simon was a man who had done many magical things. That in his own mind, into the culture that was around him, they revered him as though he had the power of God with him because he could do many things. He performed, for, he performed magic for years, and he was known to be great. But now, 
There's this other power that has moved into the community. The power of the Holy Spirit is doing many, many things that are greater than what Simon himself was able to do. And so Simon understands that this power is greater than him because he sees the people that are lame, that are able to walk, the blind, that are now able to see. He's like, I got nothing for that. He's like, I got no incantation for that. I got no magic potion for that. I can't do that. And so he immediately sees what God is doing through the power of the Holy Spirit in this community. And he has to sit back and he is in awe of it. And then he begins to think to himself, how can I be a part of this? How can I get a piece of this action? And so what does he do? He sees many, many believing and become followers and are baptized. And we see that Simon is like, I'll get baptized. I'll get get baptized if it means that I get this power. If I can somehow access this Holy Spirit, then I can be even greater than I was before. Then more people will like me, more people will follow me, and then they will think that I am God. That was at, at his heart. And we come to this passage, and this passage is one of those passages of Scripture that should rub us the wrong way. And the reason for that is, is because we see that Simon, verse 13, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, for many of us, we're like, oh, great. The greatest thing has just happened. Simon, who was the sorcerer, is now a follower of Jesus Christ. Yay, Simon, let's give it up for him. He's just done this mighty thing. He is a follower. And we should not be too quick, as individuals and as others, to see a desire to follow Christ, to be evidence of true faith. Just because Simon's walking through the motions, and we'll see this play out, Simon's motives was not to surrender himself to the person of Jesus Christ. What we're gonna see is that Simon wanted to, wanted to saw, saw the spectacle of the Spirit and wanted to get in on the spectacle. He saw this mighty, mighty work and wanted to get action in it and have a part of it. He didn't want Christ. He just wanted the Spirit so that he could become greater. And that further plays out as we walk through this text. He wasn't there for the Spirit. He was there, or he was there for the spectacle, hoping that that would bring him the Spirit. Let me remind you that baptism in and of itself does not save someone. Throughout the course of human history, there have been many, many people that have gone through the baptismal waters and been baptized but not fully experienced salvation. Salvation comes before baptism. When a person comes to say, I'm placing my personal faith in the work of Jesus Christ, that his work on the cross was enough to pay for my sin and his resurrection from the dead is what offers me hope in life and I'm giving my trust in that. That's when salvation happens. Baptism is an external mark of a profession of faith. Now there are sometimes, even inside the church, you know, growing up, I, I, I remember there were many times, and maybe I misunderstood it, but there are many times I went to church and, and the pastor would say, come down and be baptized and be saved. Raise your hand, pray this prayer, and then you'll be saved. And I know many, 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 many people have gone through the baptismal waters thinking that they're saved when really they're not. 
So my prayer today is just as we walk through this passage is that you would be receptive to the Spirit. Because if you are walking through this so-called relationship with the Lord and you don't have true faith, my prayer is, is that the Spirit would convict you of that. Because it's possible to go through the motions without really being saved. As we see is exactly what happened with Simon. And these are one of those passages of Scripture that should cause us to pause and say, okay, Lord, is my faith real? Or have I just been going through the motions? What do I really desire in this? At the end of the day, what is my true desire? And this is what we see Simon struggling with. Simon doesn't want Christ. Simon doesn't want anything to do with Christ. He only wants the power of the Holy Spirit. And this plays out over and over and over again. It's kind of like the difference between, uh, you know when a, a sports team like has a good season? What happens? We have people that jump on the bandwagon, Right? Not true fans. No, no, no. They're just there because of the spectacle. Like the team begins to win and they start moving towards an, an undefeated season. Then people go out and start buying the hats. They go out and buy the jerseys and they're doing all this other stuff. And they just are there for the parties because they're like, I can't wait for Monday night football or whatever. Because then we're going to celebrate this. Yeah, go team. A team they didn't care for like three years ago now becomes like their passion. Right? Those are bandwagoners, right? They're just there because they want to follow the spectacle. They're not true diehard fans, right? They're not there like Detroit Lions fans. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go there because it, it pains my heart, right? It's painful to be a Detroit Lions fan. Why? To be a diehard fan is to say, you know what? There's expectation at the beginning of the season, but by Thanksgiving, you know it's over. And I'm going to do it every year until Jesus returns. I'm going to be a fan and I'm going to be with them through the thick and the thin. I'm a Detroit Lions fan. Right? I'm committed. Right? There's a big difference. And we know it. And it's a similar way to what, what, um, what Luke is talking about here in the book of Acts. This first scene should raise question in our own hearts. Why did you become a follower of Jesus? Ask yourself that question. Why did you become a follower of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus because it's what your parents did? Are you a follower of Jesus because it was, was popular? Are you a follower of Jesus because you believe that your life will be good, everything will work itself out if you just follow Jesus? At the end of the day, what is, what is your desire? Why, why are you here? Are you here because all you want is Jesus and that's enough? Or do you want Jesus and something else? See, true followers of Jesus give everything that they have to Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest gain. Second, I want us to see the Holy Spirit, or continuing on, the Holy Spirit is not a spectacle. Yes, when the power of God comes down to earth and intercedes and works through his people, mighty things happen. Strongholds are broken. The dead come back to life. That which is broken is healed. Those things happen. But the Holy Spirit is not a spectacle. The Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit is the full power and presence of God. 
It's God. The Holy Spirit is God. And he's a person that is personal. It's not separate. Second, we come to the second scene where we see confusion reigning. Right? Is, is the Holy Spirit gained or is the Holy Spirit given? That's what we need to wrestle with today because we're coming into a text we're going to see in a moment which comes in a period of time which is a little bit different than our experience today. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But look at verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but, he had only been, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this scene is going to answer the question, how does someone acquire the Holy Spirit? See, in Samaria, the preaching of the gospel had become effective. But at this time in history, even though the preaching of the gospel had become effective, the work of the Spirit, had there was still a disconnect. And there was a disconnect because God was at work doing something. Right? The Holy Spirit in Samaria didn't immediately indwell the life of a believer, which it does now. Right? At the moment of salvation, what happens? The moment that you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit immediately indwells you. But in this time, it hadn't happened yet. Why? Well, there's a couple things going on. Luke records in verse 14 that the apostles got word that the Samaritans or the Samarians had believed the word of God. And so the two leading apostles, Peter and John, were dispatched from Jerusalem down in Samaria to to see the people and then begin to pray that the Holy Spirit would come down on them. Why is this important? Well, the Holy Spirit had come to indwell believers in Jerusalem, which was a predominantly Jewish culture, a Jewish community. And we know the Samaritans, or the Samarians, were not, uh, they weren't Jews. In fact, they were half-breeds. They were half-Jews and half-Gentiles, and because of that, the, the Jews hated them. And remember when Jesus was there, he met the woman at the well, and he said, hey, She's asked the question, hey, which mountain is the right mountain to worship God? And, and Jesus says, wait, 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 no, no. There's coming a time when true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. And now the gospel has come, people have believed, and now the spirit needs to come down and indwell. You see, at this time, the unity of the church hangs in the balance. Because you have two populations there that were at odds with one another. And this one spirit that comes down on one has to be the same spirit that comes down on the other to show that in the church, now there's one man. There's no longer Jew. There's no longer Gentile. There's only a follower of Christ. And so the spirit that came down in Jerusalem now has to come down in Samaria, and it comes through the apostles. So the apostles come, and they pray that, they, that these new believers might receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. And this 
mighty thing that is taking place. Simon is aware of. He sees what's taking place. He sees the apostles are praying. They're laying on hands. And immediately these believers are receiving the Holy Spirit. And he's like, man, I got to get that. But notice in the text. Some of you that want to question the fact, hey, was Simon really a believer? Well, we see here that Simon never receives the Holy Spirit. Right? The apostles never lay on him hands and say, here's the Holy Spirit. No, instead of him getting it, gain, or getting it um, given to him, he wants to gain it. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And so what does he do? He goes to the apostles and says, hey, can I buy this from you? Like, here's 10 bucks, man, is that enough? You want more? Okay, here's 20. No, no, here's 30. Okay, here's my whole life. Like, here's all that I own. Can I get the Holy Spirit? And he's, he's got it all wrong. Right? The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes on us, it comes not as something that we gain or something that we earn. It's something that is given. It's a free gift that comes from the Lord. Why? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Because it's the Holy Spirit, it's God indwelling us that allows us to feel conviction of sin. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand the need for repentance, gives us the power to repent. The Holy Spirit also gives us the power to obey. Like it's the Spirit that gives us the power to live a godly life. If God says, hey, you must be holy, you and I have no power for holiness in and of ourselves. We must receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon receiving, not receiving the Holy Spirit is an indication that he had not sincerely believed or been regenerated yet. You see, it's this powerful response in our hearts. It's how we understand our relationship with him. We come to believe in Christ And the moment that we give our lives to Christ, when we repent of our sins and turn to him, this power immediately moves into our lives and begins this transformation work in us. So not a sense in which you have a baptism and then you have a baptism of the Spirit. No, that's not not what's happening. This is one of those cases in Scripture where we're in like this weird time. This doesn't happen anymore. We no longer have to wait for an apostle or someone else to touch us and lay hands on us and then we receive the Spirit. Now that that comes instantaneously at the moment of salvation. But it's not something that we earn. It's a gift that is given. So if you've been like living your life, you believe in Jesus And you're like, I got to get more of the spirit. I got to get more of the spirit. What can I do to get more of the spirit? Can I give more of my money to the poor? Can, Can I come to church more? Can I do these things? No, you have the full power of God living inside of you at the moment of salvation. It's there. You you don't need any more of it. It's it's already there inside of your life. We just walk in it. We feed it. Right? We don't quench the spirit. By, by denying the fact that the Spirit is inside of us and when we feel conviction over sin, we listen to that. We don't say, ah, no, 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 that's not it. Which we're gonna see in just a moment, the power of conviction in our life. Third, let's look at the scene of correction. And this is where we see one of the great powers of the Holy Spirit. 
what we're going to see up and against in this passage is religiosity versus repentance. Look at me in verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. The intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, "Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me." See, Peter sees the mistaken and dangerous perspective of Simon that he has on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift. It is a gift of God, not something that we can earn. And so here we see Peter rebuking Simon. The Spirit is is not a force to be purchased. The Spirit is is power that we can possess, but it doesn't come through this. And and Peter goes right at the heart of Simon. He's like, you got this thing all wrong. You've got all of this wrong. You have neither part or lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God because you don't really desire God, but you desire this gift so that you can make much of yourself. And then he turns to me and says, this is your response, repent. You're not on the right path. You're not going the right way. You're not doing the right things. So repent, turn from your wicked ways and turn back to the truth of God that is found in the person of Christ. So he confronts him. Simon is trying to cheat God. Simon is trying to to circumvent the system. Simon is trying to go about doing things his own way for his own sake and for his own glory. He's not willing to come and die. And so Peter tells him, like, repent. for, For in you I see the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Meaning that he is caught still stuck in his trespasses and his sins. He has not been made free from the sin that dwells in his heart. So he's saying, I repent, turn from this. And, and, and look at his response. Simon Peter's response is interesting because he's not, he's not praying a prayer of repentance. He's praying, he's saying, pray for me as though he's asking for a religious thing to take place. He's not saying, I'm going to change. But he's saying, hey, Peter, Peter, will you be my intercessor? Will you go before the Father on my behalf? Will you pray that the Lord, nothing that you've said will come upon me? So he's still stuck in his trespass. It sounds like Christianese, right? That sounds like a great Christian saying, pray for me. But at the heart of that is still a willingness, a disobedience, an unwillingness to bend his heart to that which is true. And we see that his call to repent goes on deaf ears because there's nothing inside of Simon that's willing to turn. There's no desire for repentance, which again is a work of the Spirit. The Spirit is what moves into our lives and causes us and gives us this yearning for repentance. 
So even at the moment of us turning to the Lord in salvation, it's a work of the Lord that causes us to turn. It's the spirit that opens our blinded eyes, takes off the callous over our hearts, and makes us sensitive to the truth that is before us. When there's an unwillingness to bend to the truth, then it's unevidence of the work of the spirit. For the spirit always comes in spirit and in truth. There's no change in Simon. He won't repent. And so... At this point, there's no hope for him. Now, Simon, we don't know the rest of the story. There could be a time later on in Simon's life that he could turn and he could repent now that he knows this and has time for the Spirit. But the Scripture doesn't tell us what happens to him. You see, the truth is, is that even religious externals are not evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life. There are so many times that that people are like, okay, I I, want to do this church thing. I want to do this church thing, so I'm going to go all in. I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to start coming to the church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start serving. I'm going to get involved in a Bible study. I'm going to do all of these things. And you outwardly are doing these things. But the desire to do these things are not coming from within, from the work of the Spirit. But it's coming from a place of work where you're trying to earn it. You're like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Those are all religious externals that don't mean that you really have a real relationship. There's a way in which you can walk in the Christian life and experience behavior modification, but not experience Holy Spirit transformation. Do you hear me on that? There's a way in which you can experience behavior modification. Right? We can change our behavior. There are things that we can do to change our behavior. But behavior modification does not mean that there's spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation is only the work of the Spirit inside of us. And spiritual transformation is evidence that the Spirit is evident in our life. If, if we're experiencing spiritual transformation in our lives, that is evidence that there is true faith. You're like, explain to me more. You see, the Spirit's work in our lives convicts us. When we go astray and we, we, we turn from the right way, the Holy Spirit inside of us convicts us. It's that small voice that says, you're going the wrong way. You're doing the wrong thing. You feel it and you hear it inside. That's evidence of the Spirit. Now, you may silence that voice. You may, ah, no, 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 no. You may, you know, desire it all away and you may come up with a bunch of different excuses about all, but the Spirit will not go away to the believer. You're going the wrong way. No, 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 no. You're going the wrong way. No, no, no. You're going the wrong way. No, 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 no. And then finally, you come to the end of yourself and you're like on the, on the ground and you, you, you've got this whole mess that you've made. And the Spirit's like, are you ready to listen yet? And you're like, yes, I surrender. And the Spirit picks you back up again and the Lord's like, the Lord's like man, I love you. Let's go the right way. And you repent and you turn. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit works in us to convict us of sin. The Spirit helps us to repent. Spirit gives us the power to obey. 
Right? You don't have the power to obey. Right? When the, when the Lord says, be gracious with your finances, uh-uh, that's mine. I earned it. Right? But then when the Spirit begins to work inside of you, you're like, God, look at all you've done. How could I not? It's all yours, Lord. It's all yours, Lord. It's all yours, Lord. So we grow in generosity. We grow in graciousness. And what comes at the end is God, in, through the Spirit inside of us, produces holiness. He produces godliness. I love how in Paul and Galatians gives us this, this sense, this picture of the work of the Spirit inside of us. Not, not, the, not the behavior modification that is determined by the will of man, but this is evidence of the Spirit working inside of them. This is what he says will happen when someone begins walking in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that the Spirit produces in us. These are not things you can do on your own, but when you are a child of God, when you have given over your heart and your soul and your life to the person of Christ, these things begin to develop. I often come back to Galatians chapter 5, and I often use this as a rubric over my life. And I often come back and I say, Lord, okay, I'm not experiencing these in my life in, in the fullness. Right? I have in the past, but right now, it's hard for me to have patience. It's hard. In this season of my life, it's hard for me to have patience. God, please help work this out in my life. And guess what happens? It begins to work it out. And then six months down the road, I look back and I'm like, oh my goodness. I was patient. Yippee, I was patient. And you're like, guess what? It wasn't a work of me. It was the work of the Lord. And it's like, Lord, thank you for helping me be patient. God, thank you for helping me be more loving. God, thank you for giving me self-control. Oh, Lord, I need self-control. Who needs self-control this morning? It's a work of the Spirit. Our message to you today is let us sit in the reality of this truth and ask ourselves the question, what are we really, really after in our lives right now? Do we really, really, really want to make much of ourselves? Like, are we really in this so that people can see us and know us and think that we're holy people that are set apart? Like, is that why we're really here? Are you here because like, you have to be here? Like, I don't know why you're here. Or are you here because really all you desire is Jesus Christ? Is that really what your hearts desire? Because if it is, and we come to the person of Christ, we're like, Christ, I need you, I love you. Like, I no longer want to follow you in religious rules. I don't want to follow you to, to do these things so that I can be made right. I know that I'm already made right, so help me just to walk in you. So as we close, who is the Holy Spirit to you? Is he God? Is he the third person of the Trinity? Have you received him as a gift from God in the exchange for your heart? Right, because we have to give ourselves up. We have to, the, the call to come to Christ is the call to come and die. Have you come to that place in your life?
Have you come to the place of saying, Lord, it's all yours? If not, then that is the call today. Maybe you're here and you have come to know Christ and yet you've been like wavering in your faith. You, you've been kind of like, I know you're there, Holy Spirit, but I no longer have been able to, I no longer want to listen to the conviction in my life. Maybe your prayer today is you ask the Lord to turn up the volume. Lord, turn up your, the volume of your voice in my life. Allow me to become uncomfortable with my sin. Because the more holy we become, the more sinful we understand that we are. And the more we have a deeper understanding of our deeper need for the Lord. So today, you don't need more money. You don't need a bigger house. You don't need a better spouse. What you need is Jesus. Would you come to him today? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words of truth today. We thank you, God, for the gift of the Spirit. Father, we thank you that it's not something that we can earn, but it's a gift that is given through faith in you. Father, may, may we just for a moment in this time of response May you confirm in us the presence of your spirit. And Father, if there can be no confirmation of the spirit in this moment, Father, may we do the work of surrendering to you. For Father, it's possible, it's possible that there may be some in this room today that have walked the Christian life without having faith. That's a real possibility, God, and that's a scary possibility. So, Father, if that's the case today, may your conviction shake us to our very cores. May we become so uncomfortable with our skin that we just feel like we need to take a shower, that we feel like we just have to shed ourselves from our skin. May you make us so uncomfortable that we'll finally come to you in surrender. Father, that's the work only you can do. Father, for those in this place that have silenced the voice of your spirit in their life, Father, today I pray that they would come to you and beg you to speak once again. Father, for those today that are walking in the spirit, alive, would you encourage them today? Allow them to just feel you say, come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. God, in these moments, do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.